Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Please don't hit that forward 30 second button. Listen, hear me out. We need your support. We're putting out a ton of content. The Echo Chamber is coming up on its 1000th episode. And by the way, if you are a patron, send me in your questions for us and we're going to answer them as part of our 1000th episode. It's mad to think that we've made it to 1000 episodes, especially since it's not viable. It's a ton of work, a ton of research and a ton of production goes into all of the Tortoise Shack podcasts. And the only way we keep it going is with your help. So if you're one of the thousands of people who are listening, please consider clicking that link right now that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise joining us and help keep a struggling platform limping along. We appreciate every single cent we get. Someone said, if you met your favorite podcast host, would you buy them a cup of coffee? Uh, this is your way of buying a cup of coffee for that podcast host to keep that podcast going. No one's more aware of how difficult things are at the moment than we are. We work tirelessly to campaign against inequality and the cost of living crisis. We know what the reality is out there, but all we're asking you is the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month to keep the show on the road. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and uh, it's beginning to look a lot like December 2007, folks. Martin, you would have been a lot better in 2007 you look awful you're right you. thank you tony no i'm kind of awful i mean you see me <laughs> I, I, I love that you're sitting it's great that this is only a, a, a audio folks because you don't have to see him lying in his bed like, like I am. i'm lying down doing a podcast guess just it's uh, look meeting the surgeon tomorrow let's see what he does let's yeah. hope he does Think. something anyhow we are kind of back into it has the feel of 2007 and what i'm looking at is a lot of headless chickens going i'll be grand <laughs> it'll be grand well joining us again on the podcast is our friend uh constantine gordiev economist uh, and lecturer constantine gordiev constantine thanks again for coming on the pod it was funny actually i don't know if you saw someone said said to you on twitter please go back on the tortoise shack and explain what's happening did you, did you, did you, did you, i missed that one i missed that one but hey you know like it's it's you know it's like a we're living in the you know groundhog's day yes yeah. except that it's normally groundhog's day was the idea of it's the same day repeating now mm. we have the same 15 years repeating and it's really freaking tedious because mm. you would kind of think like you know it's boring enough that every day is repeating but the 15 years of the same stuff we've gone through billions of dollars and euros in terms of the expenditure on trying to sort out the world trying to sort out the banks we have had standing promises left right and central we employ now thousands of central bankers regulators supervising everything else and then boom the same stuff the same culprits the same causes the same driving forces and we have another crisis and the solution to that crisis is just doing more of the same that we've done before it's like freaking insanity Mm-hmm. And I just want to so so if you've been if you've been living under a rock, the Silicon Valley Bank, which uh, you know most of us didn't even know existed until a few weeks ago, uh, basically went went wallop because there was a run on it. Now, depending on who you hear, the run on it began yeah. began on like a billionaire tech bro WhatsApp, where they said uh, they, that they heard they were struggling because the bank effectively kind of came clean and said, well, look, we've been buying these treasury bills, you know, these 30-year bills we, because we've low interest rates and we were getting in all these the, the deposits from VCs, venture capitalists and, te- and tech startups and we were yeah. taking this. And of course, we didn't think actually interest rates would start going up. And when they did, all of their bills that they'd bought were basically then 
not worth what they what they were doing over the over the thirty year term. And when they said that, people got worried. So is it is it yet again just a, a situation of uh the, the the confidence tricks of banks or is it an actual is, is it is it just is it just one of these where we're, we're at this going well once the mood takes once it takes it's 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 done for you thinking people queuing in for northern rock waiting under their deposits back out you know it's inevitable then like can you is am i is it any different no i mean the classic run on the bank and this time around unlike in 2007 2008 we have uh, we have had a real run on the bank as the real depositors run on the bank okay now yeah. uh, and it wasn't just the svb it was other banks as well like first republic bank in california so smaller regional banks both smaller hey first republic I, bank I, is 16 sorry not the first the svb bank is 16 was 16th largest bank in the united states so it isn't exactly small can I come in on that for a sec? So there's two there's two forms of banks in the in the US and they're both regulated differently. And even SVP yes. SVP had to push to be regulated at the lower level because they they were becoming such a big regional bank that I believe they had some they were they were at 200 billion as opposed to 250, mm-hmm. which would which which puts them up there with the JP Morgans and 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 the others that are that are regulated differently. I'm correct in that, aren't I? Well, there is more even tiers than that. Okay, so there is the size tiers, which are the buy the assets, and they are basically the idea there that there is systemically important banks. In other words, those that you just rescue out, right? And then there is the systemically unimportant banks, the ones that you can actually resolve through the process of FDIC resolution, which actually, in credit to the credit to the Americans, is much better working process. They do have practice of shutting down the banks, unlike Europe, um, and they actually do so very quickly and very efficiently. The thing about it is SVB, as you said, falls in between those two. It is big bank, it's systemic bank, it's very important bank as well. Uh, but at the same time, it is kind of like a little bit of an Irish, Anglo-Irish type of bank. You know, it's monoline effectively. Most of its clients are either tech companies or the likes of wine industry companies and so forth. And, you know, so it's not, you know, and it's regional bank as well. So it operates in a specific geography. Of course, it had the UK branch and all. So it's a weird one. So when it came down to shutting it down, it wasn't as straightforward as usual. FDIC had to take it over early or first half of the day on Friday during the open hours, which it usually doesn't do so. Um, it had to shut it down then. It didn't have a pre-sale arranged with another bank. So it went into the weekend with a bit of an issue there. But all of this is a kind of, if you want, it's like a dressage, you know, on the, on the horse, you know. In the end, it still is horse racing it still is banking. And in the end, it still boils down to the fact that the regulatory framework, the supervisory framework, the audit framework, bank management framework, and the entire culture of banking are rotten to the core. And that's what this bank exposed to us. If you start digging beyond this kind of superficial idea of, hey, here's the bank which is lending to the startups. Startups had fantastic bumper years in the last couple of years. So as a result of that, lots of money flows in. You don't know what to do with the money. So you put it into the safest asset and, you know, Bob's your uncle. And all of a sudden, then all of a sudden, thing unexpectedly happens. The value of those assets collapses and you can't actually generate the cash that you need in order to pay the deposits, which your startups and so forth. All of that is fine. But don't forget, the chief risk officer of the bank is the former a managing director of the Deutsche Bank who was presiding over the Deutsche Bank as a managing director on the side of credit ratings when they fraudulently deceived the regulators and the markets about those ratings. 
I need, back I need, in 2007, I, 2008. Okay. Can, can we pause for a second? Because this this episode is sponsored by the letters K, P, M, and G. And yeah, I was, I was, oh, yeah. Sorry, I was about to go in. to mention them. But we can always say, you know, like it's one of the big fours when you look at the auditors. Because to be honest, to the fairness of K, P, M, and G, uh, there's no much difference from E and Y or for that matter, P and W and C and all the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Those actually, that industry is in predates in its incompetence and its shadiness, the industry of the banking itself. And that is some taken there to do. Remember the days of the back of the big scandals of the early noughties, the likes of Enron and everything else. We had avalanche of regulation, both in the United States and in Europe and everywhere else around the world, designed to make sure that the auditors do their job in the future. And what do we have? 11 days before the bank collapses in this spectacular ball of fire, the auditors of, you know, one of those acronym soups, okay, Mm -hmm. um, approve completely the bank. Everything is clear. Everything is wonderful. Even though there were published reports by the analysts, financial analysts, predating towards the end of the uh, February, okay, which were looking at the publicly available balance sheet data for the bank itself and saying, this is a disaster waiting to happen. So how can that happen, Constantine? How, ca- how does that happen? In a, in a world where they have, and as you've said, we're on this 15-year cycle, they've brought in all kinds of regulations. So, you know, how can it happen? Martin, when was the last time you saw a headline anywhere, say, in the Irish Times, the central banker gets fired for not doing their job? Never. Never. Exactly. So if you kind of if you want to, if you if you pay people not to do the job, they won't do it. And that's exactly what happened happened in 2006. We had regulations on the banks in 2004, 2005. We had supervisors and we had compliance officers in the banks and they reported and they, you know, lined up their reports and everything else, and everyone ticked the box, everything is approved and all. Then we discovered that the banks were rotten to the core in terms of their lending abilities, in terms of their funding models and everything else. We went like, how could that happen? And the central bankers came out. That's because we didn't have enough regulation. Give mm-hmm. us more power. Give us more money. Let's hire more people. They did. They got a new building. Or they crossed the leafy there. Okay, mm-hmm. And everywhere else as well. It's not just in Ireland, of course. Ireland just a small player in this context. You know, But everywhere else, we've hired new regulators. We wrote the new regulations. We had Basel, you know, agreements. Basel, Basel two. Oh, come on. I mean, it's 2.0, 2.2, 2.37, yeah. you know, which, yeah, I mean, like you can lose like, the track ju- of ju- this. Ju- just, for, just for the benefit of listeners, like, so, so you know, banks were obsessed with, we, well, we need to fix the liquidity ratio. We need to make sure we have all of these. We have to change these numbers. We're all going to be much more tighter on these. We're going to do all of this. I'm going to go back to SVB for a second and just say one of the things that they did is because they were, as a regional bank, they didn't even have to pass stress tests in case interest rates rose. That's yeah, insane. Well, but it doesn't matter because, because it doesn't but, matter because we have the paper now which just came out from the uh, three researchers, one from Stanford, one from USC. I think the other one is from Columbia, yes? And it's published by National Bureau of Economic Research uh, in the United States, which looks at the entire banking system in the United States and estimates that across all of the banks, including the ones which passed the stress testing, the cumulative uh, unrealized losses. Now, remember, these are unrealized losses. They might materialize, might not, okay? Mm. On the bank's balance sheet side, due to changes in the valuation of the bonds, U.S. government bonds in particular, are about 2.2, 2.3 trillion. Okay. So, currently. So, 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 
I mean, don't 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 give me this bullshit about you know this was lightly regulated yeah. bank and therefore because it was regional nobody was looking. It was all there. Can I can I ask the big word, Constantine? Systemic. Sure. Is is there yeah. a systemic failure going on? There is a systemic failure going on, and that systemic failure is not financial failure anymore at this stage. It's gone beyond financial sta- uh, stage. Financial stage, we can resolve. Financial stage, we can throw the stuff at. And we did resolve that. The, the, you know, the Fed and the Treasury in the United States did resolve it. They basically said, well, we'll abolish the market now for risk pricing of the risky assets. You know, let's just have, let's just have free for all. Whatever you have there in your pocket, we'll just call it value. And we'll attach that value to them for a year. Doesn't matter what it is trading in the market for. Okay. So we abolished kind of general finance notion of risk return relationship. Fine. Okay. So we shared that up. But the real price here is that we now have people, ordinary people, voters in the United States and also outside of the United States looking at the landscape and saying, okay, we've gotten used over the last, say, 30 years to the idea that our leadership on the political side is r- largely incompetent, perhaps well-meaning, perhaps not, but largely incompetent. And we are okay with that because we always have the notion that there is these guardians of technocratic bureaucracy that were capable of making sure that the trains run on time, that the roads don't fall apart, that the banks are not going to just shut down overnight, you know, um, and that, you know, the new financial global financial crisis is not going to happen. Hey, Janet Yellen, yes, those technocrats have PhDs. We pay them huge amounts of money. We give them good jobs, you know. They move in and out of private sector like Barney Frank and all that stuff, okay? So it's all happy times. Now that part is gone. Now we know that, you know, just 15 years after the global financial crisis, and we in effect facing very similar scenario again, the stuff that we were told they were all busy doing, so that's why we were paying them all wages and we were paying them good pensions and so forth, because they were claiming they were doing those things, that didn't quite work. So we no longer have that trust in the technocratic part of the executive branch of the government that we had before now we're therefore left to just one thing the wind of you know populism yeah so it comes down and that's where what i was trying to say at the outset that when the mood catches like we've seen i've heard reports from uh the us of of the there's only really the four main big banks and they they can't even they can't accommodate the people who want to flee from the regional banks so now you've that's got that's true now you've used then, then remember there is a massive issue because remember those banks have to do something with their money as well. Mm-hmm. If they take those depositors, what do they do? They can't lend out because hey, nobody is borrowing right now because the interest rates are through the roof. Okay. So okay, if you can't lend out, what are you gonna do with the money? You can't just take deposits and keep them on the balance sheet because you know you're losing money for them. Yes. So you're going to have to go and buy assets. And uh, the guy, you know, you go to the regulators and you say, what would you allow me to buy? And the regulators say, buy risk-free government bonds. This is how SVB ended yeah, up holding Yes, I know. I know. Let, let, wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. But, yeah, but, exactly. but, but there was a phrase. Remember the phrase that, that was thrown at, at like, you know, particularly uh, on these shores, we heard more about RBS than the Irish banks because RBS was too big to fail. Mm-hmm. Now we have mm-hmm. bigger, biggest, biggest, too big to fail because these are now behemoths. Like they're, they're. Yeah. We we haven't tackled that at all. We've actually made that much worse in terms of the size of this. And so, so it's it's just you know, uh, I wanted to ask you the question. 
uh, like, you know, okay, does do you, just because, because so many people are doing the, I'm hearing a lot of commentary where they're saying, well, you know, they've dealt with, with it well and, and it's politically motivated. They're saying, you know, they've, they've dealt with it well and, you know, they got the SVB, you know, the, it's going to be an orderly wind down. The staff will, you know, these will move, people will move on. Depositors are like looked after and they're all using the, one bad apple uh, uh, idea, as if this, the 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 barrel isn't rotten. But it seems to me when you when like even in the last like what the Swiss National Bank made a loss of one hundred and forty one billion, one hundred and forty one billion. Like this but, is so, not- Swiss Swiss National Bank has to absorb those losses because yes. of the nature of the Swiss franc and because of its kind of you know status of the safe haven. Um, so the Swiss can do that. That's not a problem, okay? And Swiss National Bank is not, you know, there's no cooking of the books or there's no anything questionable in terms of its balance sheet. I mean, sure, it's there to absorb those but, losses. But, I, but I'm speaking to, to to a bigger idea where, as you said, when you lose the confidence of the people of, of people and you lose the confidence of depositors and you lose the confidence in that, that's where it becomes even what, to get to Martin's point, with that dreaded word we kept hearing constantly, contagion. Yes, that's true. It's absolutely is the case. This is why they actually had to, you know, put a very big break in front of that kind of rolling wave of momentum of contagion to reduce the risk. So they guaranteed all of the depositors in the United States, not in Europe, really. And it's kind of funny because Europe right now is on a bit on a tear away from the Europe uh, from the U.S. trajectory. There's a bit of a kind of cockiness coming out from the ECB, you know, today signaling that they're going to you know still jack the rates up by another 50 basis points you know hey you know like i mean the willingness of the european authorities to bludgeon the peasants you know in order to reduce inflation is quite you know impressive compared to the americans uh but nonetheless you know the problem is that structurally the economies that we're inhabiting today have not materially changed in the last 30 years. And those 30 years have been, again, structurally very uncertain years, very volatile years, and also the years which were characterized by the unprecedented decline of economic fortunes of two consecutive generations, including the largest generation since the time of the baby boom generation. So we are looking at the political fallout from this, which is going through the roof. Do you think, Constantine? I think so. I think that we have the younger generation, which is looking right now at the, effectively the prospect of no home ownership. They're looking at the prospect of where they're starting the families with a reliance on their parents still. And their parents are not particularly doing well either. Okay, They're looking at the dual dependencies. If they start families and they have children, they're going to have children dependency and the parents dependency at the same time. They're looking at the expected, in some cases, um, inheritance effectively valuations potentially not being there because there's no market mm. for acquisition of those things. So you're looking at the, you know, we're looking at the economies which are Japanified around the world. I mean, Ireland is, of course, different, yes, because we have this robust and tremendous growth and the wealth accumulation and all that stuff, you know. I mean, but, but, I mean, there's a little bit of a problem because with all this wealth accumulation, with all that growth that we have accumulated over the last, you know, decade or so, as far as I understand, the actual you know, individual consumption in Ireland has fallen relative mm. to the EU. And of course, in the EU, they're all suffering from the slowdown in economic growth that we're not suffering from. So this is a weird narrative, of course, in Ireland. But okay, setting that aside, even in Ireland, yes, the younger generation currently is not looking at the prospects of having what we call traditional uh, family where you are actually being able to afford 
you know, the retirement in the future and at the same time being able to afford raising children and at the same time being able to afford improving um, living conditions um, into the future. So that generation is not going to start voting in the traditional patterns of the liberal democracy. But they're not staying, Constantine. That's, uh, this is, I mean, you say are different. No, they are actually, you know, I mean, they are staying. And this is mm. the, the funny thing about this, uh, Martin, is that I agree with you. Of course, in Ireland, the immigration used to be always an outlet, yes, uh, kind of a safety valve, all right? But we are not seeing the hell of a lot of immigration. We have net immigration back into Ireland. So we, are, we still have people who stay. We still have younger people who go abroad, for example, two, three years, and then do come back as well. Um, and, you know, it's it's not going to improve. But also, more materially, where would they go now? Because in the past, That's they the used question. to go to the likes of Canada, the likes of Australia, the likes of the UK, and the likes of the United States. But in all of these countries themselves, home affordability is shut and done. Mm-hmm. Cost of living is through the roof. Um, cost of healthcare is through the roof. Cost of education is through the roof. And at the same time, the wages are getting compressed. So, you know, look, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a bit different of the world that we inhabit uh, today. And I think that we're going to face that political and economic cost coming up down the line. Of course, in Irish context, all of that means that, you know, we're all just going around around paranoid about Sinn Féin taking over and all. Um, but in reality, that's just a bogeyman, you know, yeah. that's not, that the establishment puts Sinn, forward. If it wasn't Sinn Féin, it was going to be somebody else to fill that fight. Of course. And it probably will be somebody else as well, maybe with Sinn Féin, maybe without Sinn Féin. The problem is that we don't have any more genuine political spectrum to actually vote for. The center-left and center-right are effectively now have been, and this is where SVB type of crisis is very telling. It effectively says that forget about the incompetence in politics. We now have technocratic incompetence as well. So no part, no branch of the government, no branch of the state, and I don't mean just in Ireland, I mean everywhere, is holding any more public trust in its hands. Yeah, but I think that's, I mean, that's that's pretty clear now that we've seen, you know, the idea that the social contract has been torn up. I mean, the the, the people lost their minds because Holly Cairns made the point that, the, you know, the, the generation of... Or, or, the 25 to 35 year olds that are worse off than their parents were at the, at that age we've known about that in the US now coming into a second generation and sure. we've known we've seen a shrinking of a, a decrease in life expectancy in parts of the US which is just you know in parts across the US yes but that's mean, well, yeah. yeah and that and that's the, that is the very definition of of regression you know so so of course. when we when we're looking at that and we're being honest i i i i see what you what you mean but my my concern is Add all that together, throw in um, climate migration, throw in, you know, the, the in instability in, in other aspects. And I don't even think the and the politicians clearly don't have the answers. Uh, actually, they'd prefer if they could outsource if if you if you could somehow give them a, a a way to outsource it, like they did with, for example, our housing uh, and and how it was done. They literally said, well, you know. There's this claim being made all the time by Fianna Fáil at the moment that uh, they've built more homes uh, this year, social homes this year, than any year since 1975. And of course, I had to go in and look in the archive and I went, <laughs> this is what they said, but they didn't. They they built 1,452 homes they built through all the local authorities. Actually, in 75, the uh, local authorities built over, over 6,000. But what 
Finna Fall aren't telling you is that they purchased or leased another wow. additional five or six thousand. The leasing is such a scam. And, and like they lease for twenty five years, Constantine added as a new as a new house, but they but they pay for it, and then we still don't own it at the end of twenty five years. So like it's just so infuriating as a as a way of. And that's you know what you're talking about is a difference. I mean, of course we have you know, and I, I have to declare an interest here in this context yes. because yeah. I am one of the co-founders of the uh, one of the um, housing bodies. Um, you know, I care. Um, and, um, you know, there's a difference here. Yes. What we're witnessing in that sector is there is a for profit leasing. Yes. And then there's, of course, non profit leasing. And which is, which is, so leasing, so I, I care goes into the market and says we, we will try to keep people as a as a rental property with uh, with fair rent. Oh, by the first, yeah. it's not only that. Okay. I mean, I care goes into the market and says that when we're purchasing the house, there is no possibility. It's our bylaws. We cannot actually 30 years from now turn the, uh, the property and sell it into the open market. There is no profit taken, but they wouldn't be making any sense of making profit out of it anyways, because iCare is not a, pro- not a profit generating organization. As directors in the iCare, we have no claim to any assets legally whatsoever. Okay, So that's the kind of, that's the reality with, but we have to compete against the voucher funds effectively, mm-hmm. which that's are taking distressed properties, using the government subsidy to do so. And then within their own mandate, saying 25 years comes, we're going to put this property off the um, social housing list and we're going to sell it, you know, so the capital gains is what's going to pay us. So It's funny, you, and it brings us right back, Constantine, I, as I care, you, you're you bound by rules, conditions, laws. Of course we are. Yeah, regulations. Uh, uh, regulations, sides, yeah. regulations. Now we come back to the, the, the cacophony of, uh, of letters that are put together as regulators. I'm going to take a Fianna, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael look at this and say, is it time in the short term, certainly, to have regulators of the regulators? <laughs> no. If, if your regulators are not working, why do you think that the regulators of regulators will work any better? It's a logical problem. I'm only yes. being the devil's I mean, advocate it's like on the this. Onion, How okay? do you sell them? If, as, I, as I peel the onion, it ain't taste, tasting any different. It still is a flipping onion. Okay, mm. it's the same thing with that. It's like a cabbage as well. I mean, leaf after leaf, after layer after layer after layer, you get replication of the same thing. It's a fractal geometry. Okay, so you're going to have that with the regulation as well. How you solve it? Well, you solve it by changing the relationship between the regulators and the regulated sector, between the public and the regulators, between the public and the regulated sector. Each sector is slightly different. Ireland is fantastic in this context because it's small. Because it's small, it can be made very transparent. So the first thing what you do is you inject transparency. Transparency not only in terms of what regulators see in regulated entities, but what the public sees as to what regulators see as well. So in other words, let's make sure that whatever the material risk models are, whatever the material risk inputs for the assessments are, they are published and they're available on a regular basis. Then let's make sure that when we are doing stress tests, we're doing stress tests on a transparent way as well, and we publish not just the results of stress tests, but also a methodology which goes into it as well. So that the analysts, for example, of the banking sector in the sell side or the buy side of the stock market can go through that and say, well, hold on a second, but you didn't look at A, B, and C. And then let's make sure that the you know, supervisors and the regulators have a material incentive 
through both liability and the reward structure. In other words, getting paid more if they do their job and getting out of the job with no pay if they don't do their job in order to go take that analysis from the public domain and say, okay, we're going to retest now. We're going to check those things. We missed something, okay? Right now, we have these high priests of you know, finance sitting in the central banks, sitting in the regulatory offices and supervisory offices, and they're interacting with other high priests of the finance, the bankers themselves, okay? And the public looks at all of that and says, well, I'm, you know, I mean, I can trust that they're doing the right job there and that they're not all causing up with each other. And until SVB, we were willing to say so. I think that's that's going to change from now on. Okay. So you start that, that's where you start from. Okay. Then the other thing is as you go in that process, you realize that there's a shitload of information there, which is probably not very relevant. Mm. Uh, perhaps it is too obscure. Perhaps it is not collected properly, like say audited accounts and stuff like that. And you start improving the quality of information that you're using in your analysis and also putting out into the public domain. Gradually, you're going to arrive at the data-driven, information-driven analysis and decision-making. And remember, you're also aligning the incentives for the regulators, supervisors, and enforcement agencies with the you know, objectives of what you're regulating. So you're actually starting to pay the regulators to regulate. No, I mean, I but think about- you need to have enforcement. You yes, have the, to put oh, down the foot. And, you know, you have to basically say, you know, if the regulator X, who was entrusted with supervising, I don't know, SVB, uh, in terms of their quality of their assets and uh, in terms of quality of their risk taken, you know, if that regulator hasn't done their job, they're out of the job. Not only they're out of the job, they've lost their freaking pension, just like in the private sector you get, yes? You're gone. Bye-bye. Okay? But what, you, what, we have, no... what we have in our central bank, and again, um, is quite often, is we, we have people come, graduates come in, join the central bank, have it on their CV. They love to have it on their CV before they go to one of the big four that we referenced. Mm-hmm. The, the, and, and, and it becomes then that they know the people who are coming behind them. And, they, and then when you say, so it's not even that coziness is, it's, it's, it's actually, it just it designs itself. It becomes itself because you know I I used to work with Constantine in there and, and you know and this is the this is the relationships especially in in within within an Irish context through the through the prism of how small it actually is it's 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 not a, it's not as big a, a a field as people like to believe it is can I go to something and I know uh, it's it's a huge digression but I think it's it's important because we we've, we've covered it with you several times but you've been covering now for quite a while the um. I think you was it was did you refer to it as the paradox of sanctions? Um, in uh, we were talking about obviously the, the the pain that we're all suffering in terms of the energy crisis, the food crisis, and what's going on. And you've written about it again for the currency, the currency.ie. We're not sponsored by the currency.ie, but we're there you go, plug away. Um, but but we're, we are we are still seeing this um from the, through the our own eyes all the time but you wrote recently through the through the kind of perspective of well how do they not work because the russian economy is going to outperform the british economy you know and, and you know and and what what does that say can you just give us a sense of that and, and i don't want to talk it's know, a very dynamic uh tony it's a very dynamic uh environment so what i wrote about and i'm still actually going to 
submit another article on that topic because I agreed to do four, um, or I kind of envisioned four. And this one is going to look at the investment climate in Russia right now and the foreign direct investment into Russia as well. Um, the paradox of sanctions is not only the part that I'm highlighting, that they haven't worked as we expected them to work so far. And uh, in fact, in many areas, they actually backfired uh, on, you know, not so much on our consumer side, not in terms of necessarily the costs of energy, uh, but in terms of our expectations, it backfired. But on the other hand, you know, what we're seeing also, it's changing over time. And there's some indications in the last couple of months in terms of data that some of the sanctions are starting to work, interestingly enough, okay? So one of the things is that we're getting is that there are some estimates right now coming out of the investment banks and analysts looking at the cost of oil production in Russia being about, say, $45 a barrel. And then the cost of shipping oil has gone to about $17 a barrel. And so you are now looking at about 30%, sorry, not 30%, one-third now of the um, oil uh, export revenues that the government is collecting since the start of the year. So this is a new data that's contrary to what we had before. And it looks like some of the sanctions with a delay and with lags starting to kind of work. We're not sure if it's really sanctions which are working, by the way, or it's just warm weather in Europe, <laughs> you know, um, or something like that, okay? What's important is, though, for us to understand, I think, is not so much the aspect of at any given moment in time, does it work 10% or 20% as we thought it would, but rather to understand why it is not working 100% as we expect it to be. And the answer to it is very simple. Russia isn't isolatable. And the problem, to uh, the why it is not isolatable is not the lack of resolve on the Western side. There is a mm. bit of that, a little bit here on the margin and there on the margin. Things like, say, for example, listen of tankers and stuff, okay? But this is subsectors. This is not economy-wide level. The reason why it is not isolatable is because the rest of the BRICS, because the rest of the emerging and frontier markets and middle-income economies don't want anything to do with us, mm. with us being the West. And we have led ourselves into that situation through the years of the policies, which include, by the way, the way we addressed the resolution of the global financial crisis. We did so through financial repression, measures of financial repression. We stopped investments and we reduced investment, increased the cost of investments to the emerging markets. So take, for example, the United States vis-a-vis -vis Africa. Africa is the fastest growing continent in the world. It has been doing so for quite a number of years now, more than a decade. And the United States engagement with Africa has tanked, mm. literally in terms of investments and trade, okay? So as a, when you look at that and you say like, okay, do you expect African countries to actually take the view of the United States and align with the US-centric worldview? And Washington still does because Washington thinks that Africa doesn't have autonomy. Yeah. But the reality is Africa does have autonomy and it has autonomy economically, it, it, it has it, autonomy politically. It's built out in, in I know, um, one of the trade missions and when particularly relating to Africa, I think it was the US promised something in the region of $250 million. And, and I yeah. think the, I think the phrase was something like, like, uh, yeah, China does that a month. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I mean, like there are conditionalities that are attached and everything else and changes, of course. But in the United States, uh, in terms of uh, investments that the United States facilitates into those countries, into emerging markets, there is also conditionalities. Just like Chinese, they demand that there is certain purchasing 
of the U.S. produced goods and services, that there is certain participation by U.S. multinationals and so forth. So when we say that there is not just quantum, but also the conditions which are being attached, you can't start and understand, uh, start understanding why the likes of Indonesia, for example, invited um, Russian investors to participate in construction of their new capital, where they're going to be rubbing shoulders with the investors facilitated by the EU and by the United States and by Japan. In other words, here's the sanctioned and here are the sanctioners mm. in the same location in Indonesia investing in the same project. That, how's that going to work? I mean, and this is, you know, like, uh, like look, I mean, the reality is that we all want, uh, I mean, I certainly want um, resolution to the war Absolutely. That will restore independence of Ukraine and sovereignty of Ukraine, will, which will restore the boundaries of the Ukraine and territorial control of the Ukraine as it had before, and will give Ukraine meaningful independence in terms of determining what its future is like. That's absolutely undeniable. Okay, The reality is that we are overestimating the extent to which the sanction can work. We are also kind of creating the shadow economies around that are you know, undermining the market conditions and market environments right. um, in our own economy. Yes, in our own economy, yes, but even globally, we're not even, it's not even a shadow economy, it's in our faces. I mean, uh, like we we covered, uh, we had Nicholas Daly Allen talking about, you know, Biden's trip to Mexico to try and have this um, this conference and he more or less, he said all the right things and then when he left, his, his trade people said, oh, and you have to kind of, you know, if you want to, if you want to do this, you have to accept US standards on food standards. Oh yeah, standards. I, I was telling you yeah, that exactly yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's it yeah absolutely yeah. and the lads I mean, like, are... this is you know we, we had blinken and uh biden you know yeah. shouting from every podium about our partners and everything else in mexico and then they turned around and they said well you partner you do how we require hmm. you have no choice like and of course you know Mexico looked at this. <laughs> you kind of begin me. Yeah, and, and and then looks at Brazil, looks at Colombia, looks at all yeah. these places now and says, well, actually, um, yeah, no, we think like uh, again. Look, I just think it's yeah. We need to be we need to wise up. The, no, the non-aligned countries, as they were traditionally called, have a lot more clout than we pretended to ourselves. Well, now actually, even aligned countries traditionally, Mexico, you always used to be aligned with the United yeah, States. Yeah. So I mean, we are now generating more and more unaligned countries. If you look at, for example. Uh, you know, look at the breakthrough between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I mean, Iran and Saudi Arabia normalizing their relations because both of them want to be a part of the BRICS environment. Um, it's not because they believe in BRICS. It's not because BRICS are very coherent uh, block, but it is a block. And it is a block which is a very significant one in terms of the resources that are available to it, both in terms of financial resources, but also economic resources. It's a block which is capable of generating coherent, perhaps for now, trade policies and investment policies. So all of these countries are trying to line up. Indonesia is, of course, on track as well to be there as well. So we're looking at the BREEX instead of BRICS, you know, because there's two eyes now there and so forth. So just, just, just for the that, benefit of listeners, okay? So it's, it's it was Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China. India, China. The, and the, now it's Brazil, the, Russia. India, Indonesia, Indonesia, China, and South Africa. And, and, and I got to tell you how how funny um, it is now because we're looking at this as from the perspective as like this is now a threat to the let's let's use the phrase cheekily global hegemony, right? <laughs> that is it. But but they used to sell, and you might remember this, Constantine. They used to sell brick tracker bonds. Do you remember them? You could go into a bank, and if you had five grand, ten grand, you could invest in the bricks. And uh, so so we were, you know, it was all good back then. Now, now, now we're uh, of course all, you know because because we created the glo- globalized world 
And then we ended up not being able to live and compete in globalized world ourselves. So we started the process of deglobalization and regionalization of trade. We started the process of undermining the WTO, which was our baby, you know, our meaning Western baby, of course. Uh, we started the weaponization of absolutely everything under the sun, from the media all the way to the dollar, to the banking systems, to everything, okay? And now we're starting to sit on the sidelines watching all the rest of the world moving, and we are crying now. And them basically saying, you know, you, you have to stop. You have to yeah, stop but, doing what you're doing. Yeah, but is it not, you know, on a wider, longer spectrum, is it not the last throes of imperialism? Some people say it is. I would tend to think that it probably is. We don't know. I mean, the reality is that we are also now, of course, assigning indirectly in our conversation certain intentions and certain values to the BRICS that are not necessarily there. I mean, when we say that the BRICS are presenting or seeing themselves as an alternative to the hegemony of the United States, we're forgetting that hegemony of the United States, for example, includes much more benign regime of Europe and much more benign regime of Japan. Um, probably more competitive. Europe is certainly is more competitive than the United States economy is now. We're a more market economy in Europe than the United States is. Um, there's probably less distortion in the European economy, and there's at the same time more social dimension to European economy than the US. So there's a fragmentation within the West itself. But there's a similar fragmentation within the BRICS. I wouldn't say that China is a benign power globally. I don't think that India, as a non-aligned democratic state, is a benign power as well. It is extremely self-centric. It's extremely focused you know, laser focused, laser sharp focused on self-interest, okay? So is that good to the global, um, you know, law and order? I don't know. What What's happening right now is a multipolarity. Can multipolarity lead to bipolar type of hegemonies and the, you know, confrontation between the two poles with India once again finding itself in this kind of non-alignment territory vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union versus the United States as it had before, yes? So now instead China versus um, the United States. One of the things is for sure, which is a very different dynamic to the past, is that China currently is organically aligned with Russia. Mm -hmm. And Russia is nowhere has nowhere to go um, other than staying in orbit of China. That creates the absolutely you know, unprecedented, if you want, uh, focal low, you know, regional power. Uh, regional power from the point of view, if you think of the two regions, juxtaposition within that, uh, that we didn't have during the Soviet time. Uh, Soviet Union was a giant economy, but it wasn't a giant economy of the proportions that we have chi Chinese manufacturing and services based together with the combined with Russian resources. So, I mean, it's we, we are in a very uncertain territory. Um, is the good old monopoly of power of the hegemony of the United States dissipating? That's another open question, because right now what we're seeing is pressure on the financial and economic sides. But there is no challenge right now to the military hegemony. What happens when the military hegemony loses control of the global economy and global financial order? Is it going peacefully? Like, say, for example, the British Empire. But the British Empire didn't go peacefully on its own. It went, you know, first of all, it lost the military hegemony. And then second, it's of course lost its total you know, political and economic geopolitical hegemony um, or power thanks to the United States. In this case, there is a confrontational process. So we haven't lived through that transition of power um, globally uh, before.
Or at and least so, not and, only and, in modern days. And sadly, sadly, it looks like Taiwan might be the might be the the how do I put this? The sandbox where some of these ideas might play yeah. out. Uh, Taiwan and then of course Ukraine and then mm-hmm. beyond Ukraine we have other um, you know states independent states that have you know formed after the Soviet Union collapsed I don't like calling that former Soviet Union because there's so many years have elapsed already and they have mm. their own identities and all and of course you know while the Baltic states in my view are secure uh, not that they feel themselves secure which is a tragedy of its own of course uh, but the places like say for example Belarus uh, places like Georgia, places like Armenia, um, there is there are a lot of open questions. Moldova even is coming into play as well, and of course Ukraine. Um, so yes, you're right. I mean, and the problem is that when you have the juxtapositional confrontations um, through proxy conflicts happening that are being effectively led by the superpowers behind them, um, you know, it's a, an extremely volatile, but also extremely uh, you know, humanitarian level, disastrous type of the environment. Constantine, thanks for having the chat. You always cheer me up. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, nothing cheers you up like a good dystopian novel. <laughs> well, I, I look at it this way, Constantine. It, we will be lucky to live long enough to see all of this. Uh, global warming will probably get us all first. You know? <laughs> Martin, the, the idea of the global warming is an idea of the problem that requires, by definition, coordination and cooperation across the borders because global warming doesn't have the borders and look i mean the environment that we're living in right now all these risks that we were talking about all these confrontations that we we're talking about are re-establishing the borders so we are moving farther and farther away from the glo- yep. dealing with the global warming. oh there's, there's i have i have totally given up all hope for it constantine oh, i can't me. see i cannot see the idiocracy which is also a, a criminally based, fraud based nonsense, is ever going to come together to solve this? Ever? I really don't. I f- I will say myself and Constantine um, next Monday are launching our our new range of prepper uh, stuff. So if you want to get your own cabin, and, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the only business. That's the only business that's going to be going to be growing. Better land for you. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canned goods, weapons, walk, clear water. Tablets. No, no, yeah, you <laughs> want you want to do what they do in Hawaii? That water reclamation they do, where they get they take rainwater and yeah. turn it into drinking water. They're way ahead of us. Oh, <laughs> and on that cheerful note, folks, uh, we will be back. Uh, we're back tomorrow. Uh, I did I did reference it, but there's um, a guest coming from the UK who was apparently Theresa May's. Um, Housing guru, so that that'll be interesting because uh, apparently uh, they're coming over to the to the tortoise shack themselves to have a conversation. So we'll 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 get that out to you as quickly as we can. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you all very very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.